Hello, and welcome to Best of Shows, a weekly conversation about the biggest things happening on the small screen and a guide to what is and is not worth your time. I'm Kristen Baldwin, TV critic at Entertainment Weekly, and I'm joined by my fellow EW critic and TV junkie, Darren Freenich. Hi, Darren. How are you? Kristen, I'm doing great. We are coming up this week on a long-promised TV event. I would describe it as a biblical moment, actually, um, with my with my trademark lack of hyperbole. Uh, the Deadwood movie is oh happening. Oh my god! Are later you so excited? I, you know, I, I mean, minor spoiler alert for people out there who haven't seen it yet. I, I have seen it, and I'm still excited for it to be out in the world because uh, I was, a, you know, I, I was so into the original show. I, I didn't watch it when it was originally on, but I, I kind of caught up with it in years later on something called DVD, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. like that is a show that just kind of famously seemed to end with a lot more left to be done. It feels like the end of something. I'm not sure what, but I'm excited to talk about it with you next week. I think everybody should check it out when it yeah. airs on HBO this Friday. The, the 31st. Although, if you you should probably watch the original series, everybody, because it's one of the great original series, too. So just quit your job, watch three seasons <laughs> of Deadwood, so you're ready for, for next the week, finale movie. When we discuss it. Okay, fair, fair. I mean, look, uh, or do your job, in my case, and catch up on the seasons that you missed. I, did, I was an in-and-out viewer of Deadwood. I always enjoyed it. As you know, one of my pet peeves in TV is when people are dirty and... Everyone's kind of dirty on that show. And I, you know, it, it was a barrier to entry for me in terms of like, it would make me uncomfortable to see all those women in those heavy dresses and the petticoats and everything and walking through the muck. It, you know, my OCD. Here's what I'll say, Kristen. Here's yes. what I'll say. The movie, notably cleaner. Interesting. Okay. Because like you know, because like, like like time has passed okay. in the world of Deadwood as it has passed here, um, and just it just everything looks a little, you know, the clothes are a little nicer. Civilization has kind of arrived. Okay. So I think I, I think this may be you know it's great when they react to our criticisms. Kristen, <laughs> and it sounds to me it so sounds they, to me as if everyone they heard involved me. in Deadwood they heard, they heard me. <laughs> They're like, let's just make it a little cleaner for Baldwin. All right, good, good. I'm glad to hear it. I uh, look forward to checking it out. But before we do that, we got to talk about this week's programming. And so we're going to start with our What's New segment, in which Darren and I talk about this week's most notable new and returning show premieres. Uh, The first one is on Netflix. It's called When They See Us, out May 31st. And uh, it's tough, Darren. Um, On April 19th, 1989, five teens, one only 14 years old, were harassed, threatened, lied to, and coerced by police into confessing to the rape and beating of a female jogger in New York Central Park. Ava DuVernay's four-part Netflix series, When They See Us, paints a vivid, often agonizing portrait of these young men and their families, lives that were hijacked by injustice for over a decade. All five convictions were vacated in 2002. The sprawling ensemble includes John Leguizamo, Nisi Nash, and Felicity Huffman, but it's the actors behind the Central Park Five themselves who will really take hold of your heart and refuse to let go. Rather than focusing on the crime or the trial, When They See Us spends the majority of its time with the five boys, Corey Wise, Kevin Richardson, Antron McRae, Raymond Santana, and Yusuf Salam, as well as the families they left behind. The young actors playing the Central Park Five, including Jarrell Jerome as Corey and Asante Black as the young Kevin are extraordinary. And my God, Nisi Nash is phenomenal as Corey Wise's mother, Dolores, a woman who is struggling to raise her children on her own even before her son was falsely convicted of a notorious crime. Uh, Darren, this is one of those shows that I didn't necessarily enjoy because it was so difficult to watch. There was in in my house when I was watching it, there was a lot of sobbing. There was a lot of walking away from the computer to take a breath. Uh, But I also, you know, I'm not somebody who who thinks philosophically a lot about the importance of, you know, art to challenge us. But this was something that I felt like uh, I really needed to watch, even though it was so difficult. And I am glad I watched it, even though I, I even had a hard time going back to look at specific scenes to prep for our conversation today. How much of this did you watch and what did you think of it? 
Well, Kristen, as you know, all I think about all the time is the philosophical status of art. That's that's what keeps me up late at nights. Uh, this is why we balance each other out so well, because yeah. you're actually a, a person people want to hear from. Oh, um, but no, I, uh, I, 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 Kristen, I, I couldn't agree more with just the fact that, um, you know, th this story, the true life story of, of the Central Park Five is just so haunting and chilling, and it brings together so many different aspects um, of what's been a really interesting ongoing project the last few years, these sort of uh, TV shows and movie projects that have taken another look at specifically the sort of great quote-unquote crime stories of the late 80s into the early 90s, but more generally just kind of attempting to peel back the stories of these narratives that took hold in the media. And, and you know, so this, it, to a certain extent, it feels like a sibling to um, something like Show Me a Hero, something like The People vs. O.J. Simpson. Even we were talking recently about the, the Lorena Bobbitt uh, documentary series. Um, you know, this is very much this attempt to re-examine and just give a much deeper and fascinating profile of a story that, as the series makes clear, so quickly just spiraled completely out of control. And, um, you know, the, the it's split up into four parts, uh, each part directed by Ava DuVernay, who also created the show and uh, co-writes it. And part one, for me, Kristen, that was just deeply deeply unsettling scene mm. after scene mm -hmm. um you know it, it, it picks up with this almost kind of tragically fairy tale-ish sequence of all of these young dudes from harlem just kind of going into the park and like running around and like you know they are you know what they are doing is the quote-unquote wilding out that would so horrify people in the media and yeah in, you know and in broader new york but initially duvernay kind of shoots it with this almost kind of magical quality um and you know you do realize immediately like yeah these are all just these kids you know they're all kind of 15 16 or even younger um, and what happens, of course, following is you have the discovery of the jogger. Um, you have the arrival on the scene of uh, Linda Fairstein, played by Felicity Huffman, in what amounts to an interestingly topical oh. piece of uh, stunt casting. Yeah. She is an incredibly loathsome person. And I think if you're someone who's currently uh, predicated to not thinking the best things about Felicity Huffman, this is actually a pretty good role for her. Um, but throughout that first episode, you're just seeing, um, you know, the abuse of these kids, the abuse of their of, of their rights. Um, you're kind of seeing these confessions being coerced in a pretty point by point way. Um, just all really horrifying, Kristen. Yeah. How did you feel in general? Because you know this is a four part series, and it's like. It tries to be everything. I mean, you know, you were kind of saying that it stays with the kids, and we do really see them up close for years at a time as time passes and as their as their play just kind of worsens and worsens. Um, but at the same time, it's just a very different vibe in each part. And yeah. Part one is a little more this sort of real time look at like the, almost the kind of twenty four forty eight hours after their arrest. Part two becomes more of a legal thriller, and you even have um, that's when kind of the of just a lot of familiar faces starts to happen. You know, you have great little bits with Blair Underwood and yes. Christopher Jackson and Joshua Jackson as their lawyers. And then parts three and four expand e even further. Um, my one kind of feeling was I, I really respected how DuVernay and her collaborators, they're clearly trying to fit in everything into yeah. this. Um, you know, everything across the years, you know, the legal implications, the larger social implications. Um, I, I didn't always feel as if, you know, all of that stuff was worth working in tandem, but boy, that scene at the end of the first part when you finally get all of these kids together in the uh, room after they've all been through their own horrors. That that just was incredible and, and, and I think really haunting in a way that the show is kind of, you know, at its best uh, really manages to achieve. I want to point out that, you know, when they all go into the park, uh, there there's a large group of kids and there are some uh, young men who do, in fact, attack people. There are yeah. bicyclists who were attacked and beaten quite severely. But it was a large group of African-American and Latino kids. And these boys that we come to learn and come to know, they were just in the wrong yeah. place at the wrong time. Like, there were crimes that happened. But what's interesting about and really sort of weirdly unfortunate yet serendipitous about Felicity Huffman's casting is she's this woman, she's this real-life figure, Linda Fairstein, who... Uh, who at first, you know, sees the crime scene where the jogger was dragged by clearly one person into the woods and assaulted. And uh, 
later as she starts to learn, oh, I see that there were all these reports of these, you know, mobs of young black men and black and brown men, you know, wilding in the park. She uses her sort of uh, privilege as a white figure in the New York criminal justice system to to start connecting dots that aren't there. Oh, well, they must have been part of this and that and this attack on the jogger. Um, and, you know, the boys are children for the most part, and they are um, some question without their parents, with, certainly without legal representation, coerced, you know, all these sort of uh, fishy and sinister tactics. I, I agree with you that it, it does a lot over these four hours. And, you know, it, it follows their lives as they become adults because many of them, most of them grew up in jail. They they uh, spent anywhere from six to 14 years in prison, I believe. And what I liked about it, and I think this is a refrain you'll be uh, used to hearing from me, is it really focused on these men and their families in a way that it gave them back their names and their identities. You know, they're more than the Central Park Five. Just like uh, assassination of Gianni Versace turned this sort of headline-grabbing incident, oh, Gianni Versace, famous designer, was shot on the steps of his palatial uh, Miami mansion and went backwards to show us the men who uh, Andrew Cunanan actually killed, these young gay men. This crime spree leading up to Gianni Versace's murder, he killed a bunch of gay men who kind of fell out of the story as as the years went on. And I liked that this really showed us these were men who, after the headlines died down, after, you know, they were put in jail, they had lives that were... uh, lived in prison over the years, their families were affected, not just by being separated from them, but like Niecy Nash's character, Dolores, Corey Wise's mother, you know, she's struggling with like trying to get a job. And then when people find out who her son is, you know, they they don't want to hire her. And it does do this sort of very humanizing and, and, uh, affecting portrait of what these these families and these men went through. And then there are just, I mean, I don't know. Did you get to the end? Yes, I did. Um, um, and Can we talk about Coney Island, Darren? Yeah, yeah. You yeah. didn't like Coney Island? Are you going to tell me you didn't like Coney Island? Well, Darren. I, so we should explain it just in a, in a broader way. Yes. Part four, uh, which largely focuses in on one specific member of, of the Central Park Five, uh, Corey Wise, played by Jarrell Jerome, um, who's great in the part, uh, by the way, and who actually, he, I believe, is the one performer who has to play his, yeah. uh, his true life person throughout the entire series. Yeah, from um, child every, to adult. Everyone else, they sort of do this interesting kind of, they do a pretty delicate job job of staggering the fact that there's a lot of different timelines that you're kind of going back and forth yeah. between but everyone else is there's one younger actor playing them as a, a, a in 1989 and then as they get older uh, there's a new actor who comes in um, yeah Drill Jerome you really do see him age and part four is the longest episode at, at 90 minutes and it's very focused on his experience in particular uh, what you're mentioning Kristen there is a kind of dream sequence that happens which I don't know if I want you describing this because I'm not sure I appreciate that how you didn't work. Well, well, okay. You should say what you like about okay. it. That I can. <laughs> so Corey Wise is somebody who stayed in jail the longest and, you know, he, he never, he would go in front of the parole board, but he never admitted guilt, which is what he would have needed to get out of jail because, you know, he knew that he didn't do this. He spent many long stretches. I don't know how long. Uh, according to this, he spent, you know, a lot of time in solitary confinement. And uh, which is obviously very detrimental to a person's spiritual and mental well-being. And there is this, you know, he had been, his character, Corey, had been uh, at the night in question when the uh, he was arrested. Before he was arrested, he was in... Uh, he was in a chicken restaurant, Kennedy Fried Chicken, I believe, um, in Harlem with his girlfriend. And the boys, you know, a crowd of boys come and knock on the window and say, you know, come with us, come with us, we're going to the park. And he makes a choice. And his choice is, I'm going to leave my girlfriend and go to the park. And obviously, that's a choice that ruined his life in many ways. And so at one point, uh, he is depicted in solitary confinement, making a decision, uh, you know, because he's told you can leave, you can leave solitary confinement and, you know, deal with the Nazis who want to kill you in the prison population, or you can stay here. And so he gets back to his cell and he says to himself, I'm staying here. And uh, I'm going to start crying. Like he gets, 
you you explain it. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, um, th- by this point in the episode, in a very interesting way, um, you are just seeing how he is so haunted by these very specific moments yeah. that led up to him. I mean, because he even uh, in the depiction uh, in in the series, you know. He only kind of went down to the police station um, to be with Yusuf. To be with Yusuf, his friend. It, it was kind of a favor. So you just—he's haunted by these split-second decisions that wound up being so ruinous for reasons way beyond you know anything that for 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 reasons that I mean, had you explained it him beforehand, would have been so unthinkable to yeah, him because it, yeah. it's just you know such a cosmic spiral out of his control thanks to just a lot of horrific societal things uh, <laughs> uh, 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 circling around him. So he's kind of like imagining this moment where he is with uh, his girlfriend played by uh, Storm Reed and uh, he just sort of imagines doing something different basically. Yeah, what would happen I'm not going to go with you into the park. Um, Then she sort of says, I want to go to Coney Island and then there is this sort of dreamy trip to Coney Island. Um, I am am not dead inside. uh, I know that. There were were a lot of, and there were so many parts of of that final uh, episode that did really work on me. That was just the point though where um, you know Duvernay is using so many different interesting strategies yeah. in this show. Um, you know, she very often uh, sequences will kind of be overlapping. She kind of tries to condense the different court cases in this manner where you'll kind of see the prosecution and defense almost kind of going back and forth. Mm-hmm. A lot of different kind of stylistic things. I think for me, in, in the fourth part, when you kind of had that mixed with some other kind of dreamy storytelling, um, that stuff worked a little less well for me. And Kristen, as I'm saying this, I can hear you both with crying, <laughs> somehow crying and frowning at the no, same time. No, no, I get it. I I mean, I know also that personally, you know, for me, my my weak spots as a you know a viewer, I get I am very susceptible to children in peril. I am oh, very God. susceptible to, you know, this idea of like, what if you just made a different choice? Yeah. And it, you know, and I'm I'm also very tired right now. So it all, it, you know, it all rolls up to make me very emotional thinking about this moment where he's in his. He's in his cell as an adult, imagining this one moment if he had just said, no, I'm going to stay here. And then they, you know, they, I love Coney Island. I go to Coney yeah. Island all the time. And, you know, they go and they ride the ri- rides and they, you know, he, he, he wins her a teddy bear. And it's very, it's just this very callback to like the innocence of, mm-hmm. of his youth that was stolen from him. And okay, I'm a total sucker for that kind of thing. I and get I what you're saying of- that it's, you know, there's a lot happening and she's really working hard to, I mean, it does, it, it sort of veers into magical realism and then, you know, extreme and very unmagical realism, you know? Yeah. So I, it, you know, from a filmmaking st- standpoint, and you certainly are far more uh, adept at, at crit- Taking. Not true. No, it, not it, true. it is not true. true. Whatever you're saying, not true. No, just like I'm not. I'm. I'm not a film buff, and I'm not a filmmaking buff. So I'm more just like. It, for me, it, it very much worked on my emotional. Yeah. Uh, all pulled, plucked all the emotional cords, and I think that, and, and I think that you know, one part of uh, you know this process of approaching this story from so many from so many different perspectives is that I, I really do think that there are sequences that will work on anyone. Yeah, um, you know, Kristen, I think it's very interesting that Ava uh, DuVernay, who really rose to prominence directing uh, Selma a few years ago, um, before kind of going on to working on, uh, she uh, worked on Queen Sugar. Um, mm-hmm. We were recently talking about her show, The Red Line. W- what I find interesting is that in Selma, um, which is just such a wonderful true life movie that goes to places that a lot of biopics never even really get to, there's a scene in Selma that I always think about, which is when Martin Luther King, um, you know, who of course is just a larger than life figure, right. and like you know, the, the the film captures so much of his iconography and his passion. It also really digs deeper into this idea of him as someone who was very adept at creating these narratives within the media of his time. And it's such a tricky thing to achieve because, you know, 
there's a way where you do that and it comes off as if you're saying, oh, he wasn't as legendary as it says. It was all just a smoke and mirrors. And, and the film reveals that's very much not the case that, you know, alongside of this incredible, um, you know, like historically important activism, there was also this incredible savviness about, you know, how do we make this palpable? And, right. You know, how, how do we how do we get this story told? And I think that's something that, you know, DuVernay herself as a filmmaker has clearly thought a lot about. And it's interesting that in um uh in, in when they see us part one almost kind of goes in the other direction where you know you have these early sequences with all of these guys and you know again even as they are sort of you know seeing stuff that is you know new york 1989 they are seeing like uh, uh, other people that they're in the park with who are like you know beating up people like mm-hmm. there's just really a feeling with them of just being very young yeah being like you know a, a, a little bit of this sense of as you were kind of saying this this innocence that we know is about to be lost completely and you know the, the end of that scene is young kevin richardson played by asante black getting beaten up when a cop takes his helmet off and Ugh. hitting him and like that is just such a stark and complete um, rift that's that's established right then. Then so much of part one is kind of about the buildup of the narrative against them. And, yeah. uh, you know, you, you were kind of talking about how they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And you're seeing the policeman and you're seeing Felicity Huffman's character pulling all these strings together in a way that it almost feels like, and, and I, 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 I don't want to mitigate how dumb this is with a dumb comparison, but it almost feels like they're sort of doing a Reddit board where it's like, oh, yeah, like yeah. They, were, they were in the park at this time, and this also happened in the park around this time. Mm-hmm. Therefore, and you look at it as someone who's you know, a New York resident, and you're like, that's nowhere near the two places. Like, that well, doesn't right. make any sense. Like, and, it's just like... and it's so fascinating how, you know, and Felicity Huffman, you know, does such a great job sort of seamlessly making this shift from like, you know, prosecutor who really wants to get justice for the Central Park jogger who was, you know, viciously attacked and left for dead. But she then shifts to like, villain who want will get conviction at any cost. And you believe that she believes it, you know, she's like, well, it's a bunch of black kids. They were in the park. They must have done this. And the yeah. subtlety of that racism, it's just so awful. And yet yeah. it's it, it so clearly was so pervasive at the time that that's, you know, what doomed these young men. And do you think it's, again, it's an interesting performance by her. And I, I do think it is, you know, ultimately a really good performance. Yeah, it and even, is. And, and even like, you know, um, like the last time you see her, there's something really chilling about her constant resolve. And it's, it's fascinating because like, you know, her perspective on it as it's presented in part one, you know, you realize that like inside of her head, she's Mariska Hargitay in an episode of Law and Order SVU. Like she, yeah, she's yeah, 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 yeah. completely right. She kind of mentions the horrifying statistics on sexual assault that had happened in the city that year. For her, this is a holy crusade. And I I, I think that, you know, it's to the series' credit that you can almost watch her scenes initially and see that she believes she's doing this for the right reason. Next thing you know, she's talking about sending an army of blue up into Harlem. Mm-hmm. She's talking about, you know, these these boys, these young, you know, not even really men yet, in the most horrifying ways that you can talk about them and, and you know, actively engaging in, you know, what, what the series makes very clear was, like, abuse of their civil rights and you have the cops kind of telling their parents not to... All this stuff that is just so horrifying. And I yeah. think that the dexterity of kind of revealing that because, you know, then, as a counterbalance, you also have cameo appearances by some lunatic billionaire named Donald Trump Ugh. who keeps on ap- appearing in, in part two. And that is just so, that's the complete other extreme of just the... the Which, the, by the way, the virulence all, of, all based in truth, he, yes. did, he did buy a full-page ad calling for the death penalty and uh, to be used on these young men. And, uh, you know, he did... Uh, vocally advocate for that. And, uh, you know, while it is uh, sort of cathartic and satisfying to see that called out as blatantly awful as it was, you know, I I appreciate that the show didn't necessarily linger on it. You know, they definitely hit it a couple times and a character does, in fact, call him the devil. There's also the moment where uh, another character, um, a a friend of uh, one of the moms of the the Central Park Five, I believe, uh, when he's on TV, she turns to her friend and says, don't worry, his 15 minutes are almost up. And watching that, I was just like, oh, God. That's what we all thought. Free me me from the prison of history. (laughs) 
I know. It was, it was very much like, okay, now I need an alternate timeline because the, the one we're living in is is uh, a little too grim. But, yeah. But, but, but Kristen, I, I think it's fair to say, you know, this just feels like a show that um, DuVernay has just clearly put so much effort into capturing so many layers of this story. And even, you know, as you kind of move into part three and part four and, and the scope just broadens, um, it just feels like, you know, whatever my qualms about some of the stylistic decisions made later on, I just think that it's such a story that vividly needs to be told yeah. and, and, and and maybe needed to be told in this way where you do just try to capture all of it and you try to capture the legal, the legal complexity of when you have all the lawyers and they're in their kind of war room and that's just one tiny part of it. All circling back around to uh, what you were saying earlier, Kristen, which I think is so correct that, you know, the material with these boys and their families and what happens as they grow into men and what happens to the families and how they're all affected. Um, you know, we didn't even really mention there's so many people in this yeah. to even try to get to. But uh, Michael K. Williams as a Bobby McRae, the, the father of uh, Antron McRae. I mean, Michael K. Williams, pretty good bet for prestige television at yeah. this point, I'd yeah. say, given his incredible track record on the small screen. Um, but he is just... Uh, intensely heartbreaking every time he's on screen for very different reasons. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, he has a line. Uh, it's kind of he has what really becomes the thesis statement of part one as you're kind of digging deeper and deeper into these interrogations um, where he kind of tells his son, you know, when the police want what they want, they will do anything. Yeah. And just Williams brings so much to that line and brings so much to his character. And I just think that, you know, those moments with the family... Um, of, as you said, giving them back their dignity and, and, and giving them back mm -hmm. their personhood, really, um, even as you're seeing them at what I'm sure all involved would say was many of the worst days of our lives. Yeah, I, I just for think sure. it, it, it's, it's such an incredible um, you know, creation to be able to accomplish that. Yeah, and I also would like to give a shout out to John Leguizamo, who plays uh, Raymond's father. Um, and, you know, their story is emblematic of you know, another thing that happened, another facet of, uh, of what happened to these boys in that, you know, Raymond's dad, uh, moves on, he gets married, you know, and, and by the time Raymond is grown up, uh, he comes home to a stepmother who is resentful of him, um, and stepbrothers and sisters that, you know, he doesn't know. And, and, you know, he's trying to, he finally gets out of prison and he's trying to come home to a place that he doesn't recognize. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that goes for all of them, but the show uses Raymond's story to tell that aspect of what happened to them. One thing I will say is John Leguizamo, um, Everybody else in the show is aging around him, but he looks basically the same uh, in the earlier period and the later period. But in fairness, in fairness, that's basically true of John Leguizamo too. Yes, so yes. maybe that's just that's a bit of you know you know actual historical accuracy thrown in. But yeah, and even you know the material with um, with the Santanas gets into just another fascinating corner of this. Again, you you just have the feeling that Duvernay and her co-writers were just so fascinated by every corner of, yeah. of these guys and, like, and, and, and the horrors that they experienced because even when Raymond is out of prison he immediately finds the walls that are still closing in on him in a lot of different directions and you know it's just it is a even if you kind of know how this story ends, um, it is a well-earned cry when the series finally gets there. Yeah. And, you know, when you kind of do see some some period of grace for these people who just were so totally, um, you know, just so completely let down and 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 aggressively victimized yeah. by the system around them. By the system and the nation around them, I would say. Yeah. So when they see us premieres May thirty first on Netflix. Kristen, uh, we just got through the upfronts period, uh, which is when the broadcast network still around and doing great as far <laughs> as they are concerned. Uh, the broadcast networks show off all of the TV shows that will definitely be big hits and bring back the glory days once again. Listen, no, listen, the broadcast television, which is still capable of, of creating a massive you know, gigantic, global, everybody wants to watch it hit, whether it's This Is Us, whether it's The Masked Singer, 
Um, you know, and one of the things that I love so much about the upfronts is in this era when it can feel as if, you know, we're constantly being a, being barraged by new shows every week coming from so many different directions. Um, there is this sort of wonderful hopefulness of watching all of the trailers yeah. for shows that are going to be debuting in, in the fall and beyond and hoping beyond hope that some of them might actually turn out pretty well. Yeah. You and I uh, took a long look at all of the trailers that were kind of uh, advertising the shows that are arriving uh, in, in the next year. Uh, Kristen wouldn't say it's like the best lineup of all time. Definitely um, not. But but definitely a lot of magical thinking involved. Uh, mm-hmm. So we thought that first of all we'd take a look at our three favorite uh, trailers from the uh, fall TV upfronts. Uh, take a look at the three at the three trailers that we did not enjoy so much. <laughs> Again, just trailers, just the covers, not the books. Um, and then just for added fun, we decided that we would look back at uh, what we had to say last year about the uh, upfront trailers see uh, what if anything managed to survive were we right about the shows we thought would be good uh generally probably not i'm nope. guessing because again <laughs> you shouldn't judge anything by trailers and even even the pilot episodes of, of tv shows especially on, on broadcast networks are not always good indicators of what's to come um but Kristen, let's start where we should always start with walton goggins yes walton goggins who is starring in the new cbs sitcom the unicorn he is playing an incredibly handsome and charming eligible widower Ugh, uh, I already love it he's got some kids he's got some friends we put this at number one we had to right we, we no absolutely way. had to you know I'm still upset about CBS canceling life in pieces boo but you know I am glad that they haven't given up on uh, the life in pieces style or sensibility of comedy this is a single camera comedy um, it's got some a cast with some real comedy chops including Rob Cordry and Michaela Watkins as uh, the married couple that want to see Walton Goggins's character get back on the horse and start dating and Rob Cordry is particularly funny in the trailer as as his friend who's like you gotta go out with the hot moms you know like because there are a bunch of hot single moms who want to date Walton Goggins <laughs> I think Walton Goggins is a great actor. I've never, I was not a big, um, you know, fan of The Shield or even Justified, but he was fantastic on Sons of Anarchy. Uh, he played a transgender character there and he was wonderful. So I am glad to see him getting, you know, getting a broadcast sitcom paycheck. And I think he could, he could be interesting in this role. Yeah, uh, and I just think that um, watching this trailer, which leans very hard on the idea of it's called the unicorn because he is a unicorn, yeah. he's handsome and lovable, and it's kind of back in the dating market for, for the first time. It reminded me a little bit of the Cougar Town experience, oh, yeah. where I, I, I sort of wonder if like that's the concept that they are leading with so strongly. But at a certain point, this show will kind of just become more about the ensemble. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that you know, with Rob Corddry and Michaela Watkins as his married friends that is that for me is like tv comedy heaven right there i just think they're right. both so funny and you know the show already kind of having that kind of bench around goggins is a pretty good sign i'm excited about this one and yes as you said walton goggins good at a lot of things where he's been like killing people this looks a little more low-key exactly <laughs> So our number two is also a comedy. It's called Sunnyside, and it's on NBC. And it stars Cal Penn as a former or fallen from grace New York City councilman who sort of winds up ending up teaching a bunch of immigrants, helping tutor them for the citizenship test. I don't really know how. I guess we just figure, we'll figure it out. It doesn't really matter. Um, and of course, all the different people that are uh, that he meets who are trying to pass this citizenship test are, you know, just a variety of different people. There's, you know, uh, a brother and sister who <laughs> I think their dad is in the Asian mafia of some kind, you know, but they, mm-hmm. they need to pass the uh, they need to pass the test. There's a, a woman who's working about five or six different jobs, you know, and uh, it's executive produced by Michael Shore, who's quite adept at the, you know, group of wacky strangers with one thing in common set up. So I thought this trailer made me laugh. It was the only one besides the unicorn that did. Yeah, I, I also kind of laughed out loud a couple of times during this trailer, and the trailer itself already seemed to be juggling a few different registers of comedy. You mentioned that Michael Schur is a very trusted name in the ensemble comedy realm, and this seemed to be kind of going for some funny whip-smart banter, plus just some pure absurdity. There's a moment uh, when one of the kind of dopier students in, in Cal Penn's sort of makeshift class, uh, he, he says that uh, he thinks Benjamin Franklin was Hamilton from Hamilton, <laughs> and 
I, I don't know why. I thought that was the funniest thing I'd heard all week. It um, is funny. It's just silly, but it's funny. It's, it's, it's very silly. And I, I think it's great, too. Um, this feels like a good role for Cal Penn, mm-hmm. uh, who I, I've always really enjoyed. And I, I've been kind of just a little concerned. I mean, he obviously took that break to go literally work in the White House, which was probably a uh, a, a, a good, healthy thing for him. Yes. Um, but I, th- I feel like he was recently hosting a game show or whatever. Anyhow, this, yeah. is, good. this is a good step for him. And I, I just think that NBC comedies in general, um, I, I just that is still a brand that I trust, and, and especially when, when, when they're working with you say a producer like uh, Michael Schur, that's definitely a trustworthy thing to bet on. Uh, Kristen, our number three uh, was mixed-ish, which also is the, a comedy. I just realized our top three are all comedies. We just want to laugh, Kristen. We that's do, all. and and we're also we're also not too sure about that show created by Michelle and Robert King that looks like it's about Ooh. demons, but that you know. Maybe we'll check it out. We'll check we'll it out. Check those, it out. Are, those are two trusted names. Um, but Mixedish is the second spinoff from Blackish. Uh, it is actually a prequel set in the '80s that follows the Rainbow Johnson character uh, through. I, I believe in the pilot we see her kind of leave this sort of hippie commune she's being raised on to go enter into mainstream uh, America, into the mainstream school system. Kristen, I have to say. Don't really care that much about the '80s anymore. I think we've had it. I think we've had it with the '80s. I think that, like you know, as as far as a time setting for a TV show, I feel like it opens you up to a lot of the lamest kinds mm-hmm, of nostalgia, mm-hmm. and even some of the even some of the musical notes in this trailer worried me. So why is it at number three? Because Gary Cole is Gary in this show. Gary Cole. <laughs> yes. What does he even play? I don't even remember. I, I, I believe he he is Rainbow's grandfather. Oh yes. Um, okay. Okay. And, 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 you know, again, to give this show some credit, it's more than just another 80s set comedy, um, you know, with uh, Rainbow and with, you know, th- with her siblings and the kind of world that, that she's entering. Um, it's very much kind of approaching it from the perspective of a mixed race kid at that time. Right. Um, which was, you know, not something that, uh, as the show points out, like they didn't even know these kids because they were raised on some kind of weird hippie commune cult. They didn't even know that they were mixed. They didn't know what that was. And it's just, I just feel as if, um, you know, it's an interesting immediately kind of like, you know, I'm, I am prone to loving sitcoms about like outsiders who don't necessarily fit into school. I wonder why, but um, I, I just love uh, the actors here just seem to be having a, a really good time. Just the overall tone of this trailer. Uh, there were a lot of other sitcom trailers that we watched that were just immediately unfunny and loathsome. Mm-hmm, and this, mm-hmm, this just felt mm-hmm. to me as if, um, you know, the, the rhythms of the ish universe um, from blackish to grownish, uh, I, I do think that's a brand that is pretty trusted. Yeah. Again, you know, you know, you always kind of worry how many spinoffs can any single source TV series uh, create, but this does seem different enough and does yeah. seem to be offering a different enough perspective that you know I, I think there's reasons to be hopeful here. I agree, and uh, you know, Gary Cole. So and, and, and Gary Cole and Gary Cole. Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> so oh, God. I, although I. You're about to spin out regarding the good fight, aren't you? Um, well, just, 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 just everybody out there. I, I tend to assume all, all, all our listeners are also good fight. Yeah, viewers. because we talk uh, enough about it that they better be, or else they're going to be real tired of us. Um, but, but just oof, where the good fight ended with him is very worrisome. I want this. I want this to be a world where Gary Cole is on three shows at once, where he's on Veep, Good Fight, and now Mixedish. <laughs> Veep is over, so he can do two shows. Let's let him do it. Let's shift gears into... And again, these are just trailers. They're just trailers. Sure. Anything could happen. Um, Bluff City Law. This is We're, we're now moving in, just to be clear, we're now moving into our three least favorites. Bluff City Law, NBC. <laughs> What's going on with Jimmy Smith's, Kristen? You know what? I don't know. Why can't television find a show that is worthy of Jimmy Smith's? Because this... Ain't it. Yeah, it's okay. So it's sort of this inspirational legal drama, which I already am like throwing up in my mouth a little bit. It's about, is that woman his daughter? I don't know. He's, he partners up with a young woman, I think maybe his daughter, unclear, uh, to fight the good fight. You know, they're going to fight the man in the, uh, in the courtroom and they're going to, you know, change uh, the legal system that oppresses the people and whatever. And, um, 
they say things like, I want you to, I want you fighting for what's right. And you can't just silence the truth. And I just, I mean, Jimmy Smith is so good. I love him. He deserves his, a good show. This is not it. There's a moment in this trailer. <laughs> and, and again, you know, legal, legal shows, especially like it's all kind of in the week to week grind. Right, and, right, know, right, I, right. I, I'm very intrigued to see what this show can do. Are with you though? Legal procedural. Are you? No, no, uh, <laughs> I'm actually not. I'm actually not. I'm changing my mind mid sentence because I'm remembering the most aggravating part of this or any of these trailers when he hands his daughter right before she's about to be. Is it his daughter? We don't even know. I think. Who cares? Oh, it doesn't matter. Daughter. I don't know. It doesn't know, matter. It, it doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. He hands he hands her a post-it note uh, in court. They're sitting in court about to argue their case. And the post-it note says, change the world, I, exclamation point. I'm like gagging. I'm not into it. I'm not into it. I'm only into it if every single week on this show he writes her a new post-it note. Then I'm back. Then, um, and one of them's like, we need milk. You know, uh, like in courtroom, he's just like starts t communicating to her random things. But change the world. Now, Kristen, we aren't just going to be picking on procedurals here in this period of uh, where we where we pick on the trailers that we don't enjoy so much. Uh, but it seems inevitable, <laughs> at least for us, that our second least favorite trailer would be CBS's FBI Most Wanted. Um, FBI, not a show I'm that into, I have to admit. Um, and so therefore, this spinoff is definitely not for me. But what put this spinoff ahead <laughs> for me... Is ahead in character. the ahead as in terms of ahead as in behind uh, yes, ahead as yes. in what what far what, behind what, what what pushes it higher in the low sweepstakes um, it stars Julian McMahon as a character named Agent Lacroix mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. Lacroix also yep. known as Lacroix yep. is a sparkling water beverage that is yep. very popular in TV writers rooms and popular everywhere here in Los Angeles and. It just feels to me as if a bunch of people were in a room and are kind of like, what are we going to like? I don't know. Let's like uh, someone looks over at the corner where the empty LaCroix cans are. Let's call him Agent LaCroix. Like I just, oh, I, I know. know. And it's just, you know, OK, this is a spinoff of FBI, which is the Dick Wolf, you know, essentially law and order, law and order, colon terrorism, you know, which is doing fine on <laughs> on on CBS. And of course, of course, they want a spinoff, you know, these types of sort of cut and dry procedurals do well for CBS. But yeah, I mean, it really is like, was the other option that they would call him Agent Red Vines? Because like, <laughs> honestly, it's it's so lazy. And you know, Agent uh, Lunchtime. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Agent Seamless. Like, I would like a show about how they named this character because it really, that's the behind the scenes. You know, you can just see a bunch of real bored and real sort of like, let's just get this done and go home writers in a room trying to crank it out. But you know what? It'll probably be a, a hit. It'll probably do good numbers. It'll probably outrate many of the shows that I enjoy on broadcast television. So more power to him like I have literally nothing to say about this other than that because it just it is what it is it's they chase fugitives and great great good here's for you something, here's something I think you may have a little more to say about <laughs> and again everyone it's just trailers it's just yeah, trailers we don't yeah. know so not just me I, on Fox yep uh, it stars Brittany Snow uh, as a woman working in the uh, realm of the fertility sciences. Her father is a world-famous fertility doctor played by Timothy Hutton. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. The trailer makes it clear that he has apparently created all kinds of minor medical miracles by which he manages to uh, help women with their pregnancies. Um, what was that miracle, you ask? Oh, it turns out that he was just using his own sperm to impregnate all these women. And Kristen, this is mm -hmm. obviously... A one of the scariest shows ever made, right? Right. This this, this must be a, a, a devastating, horrific, uh, you know, tonally incredibly serious look at what I can only describe as a medical catastrophe. Yeah, like literally a sociopath. But then the, the trailer takes a little turn. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So no, this isn't. I can't even get through it. And this is this isn't this isn't like some kind of you know horrifying dystopian nightmare where Timothy Hutton is, you know, the villain who has the spread devil. the devil who has spread his sperm, you know, to and impregnated up to a hundred women. It, it is implied. No, in fact, it's a 
heartwarming family dramedy uh, where Brittany Snow's character is, albeit slightly devastated by her father's, you know, apparent mental illness. Uh, she's just so tickled that now she has siblings. And in fact, she uh, moves in, I guess, with a couple of these siblings, uh, two women who are her half sisters by her crazy ass father. And it's like, oh, I'm now no longer an only child. Isn't this fun? We're all going to learn to get to know each other. I, I don't know what kind of effing lunatic thought this was a good idea for a family drama. It is, in fact, based on an Australian TV show called Sisters. And maybe on that show, it's actually the nightmare dystopia that, you know, it should be. But in this show, it's 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 they're trying to do This Is Us only with a truly heinous and sick crime as the basis for the show. Yeah, the, we've talked before about the kind of This Is Usification of especially some broadcast shows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you really feel it here again. I've I, I've 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 not seen the original uh, Australian show. I have to imagine, just given how Australians are, that it's maybe a slightly more darkly comedic yes, version of yes. this. Maybe not even that comedic. But yeah, there's just the the trailer is kind of going for these tones of you know. Whatever else, now they have sisters and it's all good. I, I just, oh, it's just, not, yeah. it's, it's no good. It's no good. It's effing I'm, creepy. I'm, I'm, I, 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 I'm going to tune in on the principle that this may either A, redeem itself, but also B, much more likely just be as bad as this trailer makes it look. But yeah. it, it, it seems like a colossal waste of a lot of people's time. Yeah. And I mean, I, don't, I would love to just ask Timothy Hutton, like, what? You know, they offered you this and and you were like, sure, sure, I will play this man who has, you know, criminalized my ejaculate. Um, great, great. Oh, God, what's just one of the? He's he's just playing a monster. Yeah, he's playing a straight one of the worst monsters monster. in TV history. This isn't the thing where it's kind of like, oh, let's let's gradually come to see things from your perspective. No horror dad. No, there um, is no perspective horror dad for no. for your actions. Now, Kristen, uh, everybody, please go online and read. We did a full rundown of all the trailers <laughs> from the upfronts, and again, you know, a, a lot of interesting material to draw on there. We didn't even get into the King's show, which, again, I hope it's good because we love the Kings. We love them but, so much. Uh, it is a weird kind of supernatural thing. But Kristen, we thought it could be good because, you know, again, we don't know anything. The trailers, who's to say uh, what will what, happen when they, when they actually become series? We thought we'd look back at our ranking of the upfront trailers from last year. May 2018. It feels mm. like it's been so long. So long. Um, how many hours of television have we watched since then? Millions, probably. Yes. Um, we thought we'd take a look at our ranking. We've not even looked at this since we wrote it last year. I never. I, I barely even look at my writing as I'm writing. Um, <laughs> I know. Me neither. We thought this would be a fun opportunity to kind of see what did we think was going to be good, what do we think was going to be bad, how wrong were we, how wrong were the shows. Um, Kristen, right off the bat, I'm seeing that we put NBC's I Feel Bad at number one. Based canceled. On the canceled. 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 And ultimately, a bit of a letdown from the trailer. Yeah, um, yeah, it the, was. The trailer didn't quite reveal how much of this apparently sort of sweet and sour family sitcom was also going to be about the main character working at a video game company. With a bunch was, of dude bros. <laughs> with a bunch of dude bros. Yeah, that was no fun. Which was not the best idea. Number two, All-American. That's coming back for season two. Yeah. Yeah, and that was, you know, I I watched, I think, the first four or five, which I enjoyed. I didn't keep up with it, but I am glad that uh, that it that it stuck around. I know that it was on the bubble for a bit. Yeah, and it, it's it's had a little bit of problems as far as the, the initial showrunner leaving and stuff like yeah. that. But that, that, that still feels like an idea that could kind of grow in, in a lot of ways. Uh, our number three last year was The Rookie, which did make a season two. True. I watched two episodes of that. Uh, Me and, too. And, I think I watched two. And for what I've heard from my mom, it's it, it's kept up a certain benchmark of, of quality since Excellent. then. Excellent. So Good I'm, job, I'm, I'm, Nathan I'm, Fillion. I'm, I'm glad that Fillion is, is going to be uh, hanging with us on TV for a while longer. Kristen, our number four. For, oh. which in fairness it wasn't based on a trailer it was just based on hopes which we still have <laughs> our number four was murphy brown on oh, cbs yeah oh. yeah that, that was like bad. a good idea what went wrong there Kristen? have we fully like that that seemed like that could have been a little bit more of a cultural event than it wound up being you know i think what went wrong is and what i said in my review is that you know it was a groundbreaking comedy at the time um and I just don't think that the show 
allowed itself or the characters to evolve for a new style of comedy, you know, what felt groundbreaking and, you know, very refreshing uh, 20 years ago became, felt very hacky and just sort of corny uh, today. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that like, you know, if you do something 20 years ago, you're, you're a revolutionary, but then 20 years later, you know, you've laid all this groundwork for other comedy and now you feel old. But I just, I think that I wish that Diane English and the cast had taken more time to evolve what uh, topical comedy could be in 2019 rather than trying to do it as it was done when the show was originally on. Yeah, the the one thing I think we'll be talking about a lot as we get closer to, to, to the end of this year was the weird effect of all of the revivals uh, this decade yeah. uh, where, you know, between that and even more so with something like The X-Files, something that had seemed incredibly if not rebellious, then certainly at the forefront of doing something really exciting and transgressive. Ooh, mm-hmm. Bring it back the wrong way 20 years later and it doesn't yeah. feel that way anymore. Let's skip down a little bit, Kristen, to the trailers that last year we were less impressed with. <laughs> How did those shows do? Coming in at number 20, The Cool Kids on Fox, mm. which was the sort of uh, ensemble comedy set in a retirement home. I have to admit, Kristen, when I actually saw the first couple episodes of this, I thought it was, like, fine. Yeah. I was kind of hoping that it would run forever, and it has been canceled. Yeah. So. <laughs> Sorry, Vicki Lawrence. But you know what? It was probably fun for all of the uh, very, very fine actors of a certain age who got to hang out on, on this show for a while. I'm, I'm sure they had some... Uh, I, I'm sure being on set during, like, during lunch time on that show must have been interesting yes number 21 the passage mm. aka mark paul gosseler versus vampires or something yeah uh, nope. it was it was based on a series of novels and from what i understand it never even really got to what makes the novels so great so lesson for an adaptation don't save up for a season two that you're not going to get right <laughs> Uh, number 22, Last Man Standing. Um, mm-hmm. Still st- still standing. Yeah, uh, yeah. And indeed came back and, and did pretty well for Fox. Um, and that's all we have to say about it, I yeah. think, Kristen. Congrats. Number 23, Ugh. New Amsterdam. Oh my God, the show about one man who will single-handedly save the medical system by, I believe, firing all the doctors or something. It wasn't yes. quite clear. Yeah, he went, he came in and he fired the cardiothoracic department or whatever, and he also, like, opened a farmer's market in the hospital lobby and that was, it was, everything solved. And I believe, Kristen, we can now say that this is the longest-running show called New Amsterdam in history, yes. right? Because I believe uh, with its season two renewal, it has officially outlasted uh, the New Amsterdam show that was about the immortal or the vampire solving crimes in New York. And I think that's unfair. That show should have run longer than this show. Yeah, that one had Nikolai Coster Waldo. And I will say also another crime we can uh, attribute to New Amsterdam is I think it also gave us one of our least favorite shows this season, Bluff City Law, because uh. because this is the one guy fixes the healthcare system. Now I think Bluff City Law is sort of the idea of two people fix the legal system. So <laughs> thanks, NBC. NBC, there are social problems, and one single person can fix them all. Oh, God. Well, listen, everybody out there, we want to hear what you think about all of the new trailers from the upfronts. What's looking good to you? Uh, You know, we're going to be checking out all of the pilots as they start getting released to critics, and I'm sure we'll be covering a lot of them in depth uh, in this space in the fall and and beyond. Holding out hope for evil. Come on, Kings. You can do it. (laughs) I believe in you. I believe in you. We love you. it, it, It looks like the Exorcist TV show show but that's fine whatever you're smart you have good dialogue that does wrap it up for this week's episode of ew's best of shows tweet at us she's at Kristen g baldwin i'm at darren franich you can find this podcast wherever you find your podcasts on apple Podcasts, radio.com on spotify and hey give us a rating give us a review we're critics that's all we do all day you do it now you do our job for us but do our job for us when analyzing how we are doing our job we'd love to hear from you we'd love to keep on improving this show as we go along and hear all about your likes and dislikes on television i should have a catchphrase but i don't so goodbye <laughs> <laughs>